prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Matt Damon on the roles he took, the roles he turned down, and his new film, Stillwater. Plus, a conversation with Zoe Lister-Jones. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Yep, a lot of bang for your buck. And when I say buck, I mean no bucks. The podcast is free. Um, a lot of show, though, for you guys today. We have two great conversations. Uh, a little bit later on, I'm going to be catching up with uh, Zoe Lister-Jones, previous guest on Happy Sack Infused. Her great new film is How It Ends. We'll get to that in a bit. That's coming up after my conversation with Matt Damon. But just so you know, if you're a Zoe Lister-Jones fan, want to hear about her new pandemic-era apocalyptic comedy, How It Ends, that features an amazing cast. Stick around. That comes after the Matt Damon conversation. Okay, let's talk a little Matt Damon. Matt Damon, surprisingly, has never done Happy, Sad, Confused. That's bonkers. I don't know how that happened, but we found, I think, the right project to talk about, and hopefully we'll have him back, and it won't take seven more years to get him back. Uh, the new film is Stillwater. Great new film, written and directed by the great Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy, if you don't know, has a fascinating filmography from everything from The, sta the Station Agent, um, which of course had uh, Peter Dinklage way back when, um, The Visitor um, with Richard Jenkins. He won the Best Picture Academy Award for Spotlight. Um, an amazing, an amazing filmmaker, a great actor, by the way, too. And this new film is kind of, an, as I say in the conversation with Matt, uh, an interesting blend of things he's done. Um, it is a character study in many ways. Matt plays a uh, kind of a roughneck from Oklahoma who, you know, without revealing too much, basically um, finds himself in Marseille trying to help his daughter who has been accused of a crime. Based loosely on the Amanda Knox case, this film goes in unexpected directions. It's sometimes a thriller, sometimes kind of an introspective character study, as I said. Um, it is always very engrossing and features some amazing, some amazing performances from Matt and Abigail Breslin and others. I highly recommend it. It comes out this Friday. The film is Stillwater. It just debuted at Cannes, as we referenced in this conversation. It had a huge standing ovation there. Um, yeah, well worth your time. Stillwater is the film. But this conversation with Matt touches on, on a bunch of things. He's a great storyteller and is, is uh, open and honest about the films he said yes to in his career and some of the films he said no to, some of the films he didn't get. Some great stories in here uh, about auditioning to play Robin, not once, but twice in two different Batman, fil Batman films. Um, some stories about, you know, going up against Edward Norton on early films. Um, an amazing story about Michael Mann almost directing Goodwill Hunting. What would that what that would have been? Um, so yeah, a lot of good stuff in here, and plus a little tease of his upcoming film coming out later this year that he has reteamed with Ben Affleck on. This is the first screenplay they have co-written since Goodwill Hunting, nearly 25 years ago. It's called The Last Duel. I'm so in the bag for this one. It's directed by Ridley Scott. It stars, in addition to Matt and Ben, Jodie Comer and Adam Driver. 
Uh, check out the trailer if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, it looks epic and fascinating, and um, I'm very excited to talk to Matt and Ben and Jody and the whole gang on that one. So anyway, this is a great conversation. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to it. Other quick things to mention, we have a new game night up as I speak on the Patreon page with Kevin Hart and the Plastic Cup Boys. This is Kevin Hart's real-life crew, uh, for, and they are starring at a new show on the Motor Trend app called Kevin Hart's Muscle Car Crew. Uh, we played some fun Jackbox games and talked about cars, which is amusing since I don't own a car and nor have I ever driven a car. Some fun was had at my expense on that front, um, but Kevin Hart, always amazing. So if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash happy sad confused. That episode of Game Night, uh, as all the others are, uh, are always available uh, once you sign up. So check it out. Um, all right, let's get to the main event. This is Matt Damon and I. Matt has just moved back to NYC. Thrilled for that. Thrilled to have him back in the hood. Um, and as I said, coming up a little bit later after the Matt Damon conversation, uh, I'll toss back to our second conversation of the day with Zoe Lister-Jones. All right, here it is, uh, me and Mr. Matt Damon. I feel your presence in the New York. I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah, I feel your force too. You're within. I can look down. I see Midtown out there. You're there. You, there you go. Um, th- this has been a long time coming. I've wanted to have you on the podcast forever. Of course, we've talked at, at junkets and all those kinds of things. But I'm, I appreciate you taking the time out for this one. And uh, we chose the right one, I think. Tom McCarthy's a special filmmaker. Congratulations in Stillwater, man. Thank you, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy with it. So um, first of all, uh, this made its debut in Cannes. I'm always, I'm endlessly fascinated by the phenomenon of the lengthy standing ovation when it, when it happens in Cannes and you guys were privileged enough to get one. At what point does the standing O get awkward after, it feels like five minutes is an eternity. Five minutes may not sound like much to somebody, but that's a long time to stand on your feet while people are clapping. Yeah, yeah no, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's very strange um, and it's awkward immediately. there's nothing not awkward about it adam driver actually he crushed it this year apparently he lit a cigarette in the the middle of the standing just is and he doesn't smoke but it was like he just had to he just wanted to do something i you know uh i thought that was really funny i read about i haven't talked to him about it yet uh but um but anyway yeah it's very odd but this year i was i was uh um really you know kind of oddly emotional like it just snuck up on me that moment of just being back in the movie theater again yeah just felt so great to be with everyone and and uh you know and maybe I'm just getting old I said that to Tom McCarthy I was like I think I'm getting old because I'm really emotional right now no Uh, I mean mean, we've we've all been we we were all suffering from PTSD from the last year and a half I mean I I found myself getting emotional when I was in the theater for Fast 9 so something is wrong with me (laughs) Listen, that's a tearjerker. Okay, obviously, I haven't seen yeah, yeah. it yet, but obviously, <laughs> oh, I've read all about it. When they go into space, waterworks, man, it's amazing. <laughs> did, they go into, did they go into space in Fast oh, Nine? Oh no, I ruined it for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you didn't ruin it for me. <laughs> um, your I career, just got to see the other eight. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. I knew this about your career, but like when I was prepping for this, I was reminded of the fact that. Um, 
to look at your filmography is to look at like the history of like great filmmakers of the last 25 years. It's kind of insane. Um, I want to get to that in a second, but let's start with like, for me, it's a no brainer that you end up working with Tom McCarthy. So Tom is, is a, a, a fantastic filmmaker. People know him from work as diverse as, you know, the station agent to spotlight. Um, from what I gather, he's been trying to get you in his orbit for a while. What happened? Did, did Dinklage beat you out for station agent? What 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 went down? I wish I was in station agent. I mean, that was when <laughs> I first became aware of of Tom. Like you know, and that's <clears throat> it's interesting. You bring bring up Peter. Like he, the acting in Tom's movies is always great. You know, and I mean, yeah. look, that has a lot to do with the writing and the directing. I mean, he's he's putting his actors in 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 a position to to do good work. But right. I mean, it's uniformly great. You know, I mean. You know, Peter Cannavale, uh, Jenkins, like all these guys, you know, are just awesome all the time. And uh, and I and yeah, I'd been looking for, uh, I you know, I I almost did Spotlight, but it, it conflicted with The Martian. So I, you know, it was like I had to choose between a, a kind of a headlining role and an ensemble role. And they were both great. Right. Um, and I don't like normally saying about, you know, things that look, a lot of the movies I've done were things that other actors couldn't do. I like, I like you're very rarely the first choice for something. And I don't like saying that about Smiley just because Ruffalo crushed it. And Ruffalo, I think he got nominated for an Oscar and like, it's like an amazing performance. So yeah, I always feel like the right actor gets the job. You know what I mean? Like I, I looked at spotlight and I was like, well, thank God, you know, because Mark killed it. Um, I had that happen with Milk um, years ago. Um, I, you know, Gus offered me the part of Dan White that Josh right. Brolin also got nominated for. And Josh <laughs> is, and I literally, I had to, I was in the movie. I was doing the research. I was reading, I was watching these documentaries and and I'd kind of doing my deep dive on Dan White and, and Sean Penn had a, uh, had a conflict. I can't remember what it was, but he had to push the movie six months and right. because because it pushed from the fall to the spring, I, I, I suddenly couldn't do it because I already had another job. And so I had to give it up. And, you know, it wasn't a big part. It, you know, it was a supporting role, but it, I love that script so much. And, and I love Gus, obviously. And so it was a hard one to pass up. But then I saw the movie and I saw Brolin and I was like, man, this happened for a reason. Like, this guy's amazing. Right. Um, so anyway. I was gonna say, does it ever happen where like I mean, there are some other famous ones and you, you've talked in recent years about like Avatar. And I remember, I think we talked briefly at one point about Dark Knight, like when those ginormous cultural phenomenon films come out, do you have a tough time seeing them? Like, is it weird? Do you, do you have a tough time watching Avatar or Dark Knight knowing like, oh, wait, I, I could have been part of that? Well, Dark Knight was a small role that I was offered. Like it was a, you know, um, it wasn't, it wasn't one. I mean, it obviously wasn't Heath or Christian's part. Right. Um, but it was the know. Harvey Dent role, wasn't it? It was the, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so like, sometimes you look at a role and you're like, oh, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's a, re- it's a good role in a great movie. I mean, I subsequently did a small role in one of Chris's movies. Sure. Right. In, in, in Interstellar. Like I, like I, I, I wanted to be on, you know, part of that troupe. He, he, he works with the same actors over and over and they're, they're, they're terrific. And, you know, I wanted to jump on that, on that, on that ride, but, um, but there was some other big movie I was doing, like some big part that I was doing where I was like, well, I can't play, you know, Harvey Dent 
you know what I mean? It's like, this is, yeah. this is, it's, it's a relatively small role and I'm, I'm headlining this other thing. So anyway, sometimes th- those, uh, but I think you got to kind of just be sanguine about it and go like it, it, it all works out. Like, I mean, yeah. at this point I passed on the biggest payday in the history of, right. I mean, accidentally, but like, so I can never do worse financially. That's right? a good way of looking at it. I can never commit a worse financial, like, don't, you know, don't, error. don't doubt yourself. You, I believe in you. You could fuck up even more in the future. I, I might be able, maybe I'll figure out some way. There'll be some <laughs> screaming thing that I could have, you know, owned part of the company or something, you know, and it turns into the next Facebook. But anyway, I, you know, so, but I'm not, uh, you know, you, I, I really do believe the actor gets the part that yeah. that they're meant to get, and and who knows? Like you know, had I done Avatar, would I have would I would would I have written the Last Duel? Would I have you know what I mean? It's like yeah, you know, when Ben and I were got really close on Dead Poet Society, not really close. We got called back. <laughs> that script, well, I mean, I was I don't know, I was eighteen years old, and I read this thing, and uh, and. I was like, that's, it's the best script. Robin Williams was the star. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is amazing. And it was an open casting for kids to play these prep school kids. And Ben and I were, I mean, you talk about like lit up for something like this was it for us. We were, I mean, it was, it was an unbelievable opportunity. And, and I would still say it was, I mean, you look at the careers that came out of that Ethan Hawke, Robert Sean Leonard. I mean, amazing actors, right? So those guys beat us out. And and Ben and I ended up that summer working at a movie theater in Cambridge in Harvard Square at the Janus movie theater. And the Janus played one movie all fucking summer. And it was Dead Poet Society. And we had to tear tickets and serve popcorn and 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 soft drinks to and, and sweep up after every show. And we would watch packed house after packed house coming out, wiping tears off their face. And we were like, fuck, that could have been us. You know what I mean? That should have been us. That was us. You know what I mean? We didn't get it. And I think there's a Garth Brooks song. It's, is there something where he talks about, I thank God for my unanswered prayers. Right. Right. Because, <laughs> because we wouldn't have written Goodwill Hunting. Like we, we ended up writing out of necessity, Goodwill Hunting and Guess what? Robin Williams was in it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there was a better and, plan. You just didn't weren't in control of it necessarily. We weren't. We you just weren't in control of it. Yeah, of it. Yeah. But so, so you never know. I mean, life yeah. is crazy, and and uh, you know, you just got to keep trying to do good work. And and you know, I mean, had I had I done Avatar, it's like my favorite John Krasinski story. Like when we were writing Promised Land together, and I told John that I passed on ten percent of Ad- Avatar. John jumped up and he starts walking around the kitchen, and he's like, "Okay." Okay. 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 <laughs> because nothing in your life would be different. Nothing, Matt, nothing in your life would be different if you had done Avatar, except you and I would be having this conversation in space. <laughs> with Richard, like right. I would with have Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. Yeah, exactly. That's it. That's it. And then, and then the guys who actually have that money actually launch themselves in giant space penises, <laughs> like space rockets penis rockets and fucking go to space it's like you can't write this shit no you can't uh, <laughs> so coming full circle yes um tom mccarthy uh came back to you thankfully with the right role and the right project um 
this is a fascinating one. It, it makes sense in Tom's work if you look at it because it kind of combines the different elements he's done. It's like it completes his like displaced men box set, which I feel like is like the visitor and station agent. Yeah. But it also has this like amazing kind of procedural thriller kind of aspect of spotlight. And um, I think that's what makes it work and what makes it endlessly fascinating is it kind of keeps kind of I don't know, just like it keeps you on your toes. But I, I would also imagine that's the fear. It's like, can we blend all of this together? Is this character study and this thriller all going to blend together? Did you yeah, have concerns I mean, as a writer, as a creator going in that this was all going to kind of gel? I mean, there. if you're really literal about things and you need to and you need to put it in a genre, I mean, and I think in, in America, that's definitely more the case with critics. Right. Like they need to. I know what is this? What are, what are you showing me right now? You know what I mean? What's the comp? Give me is, is, is it yeah, yeah, what's is the it, comp? Yeah. Right. It's like they think the way studios think, right? Yeah. Like yeah. and and that's kind of the way we talk about the film business in this country. But for me it's like all right, it's about this character. Are you are you going to go on the ride with him? And if you buy what I'm doing, then just get on the bus and go. And the movie takes you to really surprising places and 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 like yeah i mean you're just you you can't predict like tom said to me when we we're making it like i defy you moviegoer to tell me where this movie is going to take you like no, totally. yeah. you know when you sit down because you're because it does sit it does look like a very pat you know it does look like a like a movie we've seen before with the setup right yes you, you it goes well okay this movie is telling me a really traditional thing that American movies tell me, like I'm about to sit down for an awesome Liam Neeson movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, or Jason yeah. Bourne for that matter. Same kind of like, like those characters, it's like, you know, they have a particular set of skills, you know yeah. what I mean? And they're going to, and, and this guy doesn't have any of that. He doesn't yeah. speak the language. He doesn't understand the culture that he's, he's trying to navigate he doesn't know what's going on. He's lost. He doesn't know what's going on for most of the movie. He doesn't understand what's happening around him. And, and that's a, that's a very human story with a very traditional setup. Right. And so, and so that, that throw, I think that's going to throw people. It's thrown some people, you know, because they go, they go, well, you can't do this. And it's like, well, no, we're, we're, we're taking this setup and we're, but we're playing it real. We're playing yeah. it. These are this is these are real people. This is a guy who's carrying a lot of pain and grief and 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 regret and shame, you know, about his own failures as a man and as a father. And he's yeah. trying to repair the damage that he's done with his daughter. And he's still making mistakes. And like, that's the movie. It's I, a I, drama, I, not a yeah. thriller. No, I mean, the thriller version of this, like, I mean, I love like the risks and like the the that Tom and you take and that like, you kind of skip like the first act that would be in another right. thrill. Right. Like, the, the, like the, the conventional version of this is like the first scene in The Fugitive where like the mystery, the, the murder happens and then you're trying to figure it out. But in this, right. you don't even know that a murder has taken place for 20 minutes. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, um, you pick it up midstream. Like you, like when that was so, when people like talk about the Amanda Knox story, which, you know, this is like loosely kind of used off, used right. as a jumping point kind of like jumping off point, like, because what Tom was interested in was like, what happens to that family like five years later? Yeah. Like when every, when all the camera, all the sensationalism, everything's gone away. 
Like how do those people live their lives? And, and what if one of them was a roughneck from Oklahoma from like this really specific place yep. and was this really specific thing? Like what, you know, and he had to interact with that. What, like, what, what does that life look like? And so, um, so that's, so you're right. Like it, like the movies, the first act kind of, you know, you, you feel almost like you're starting in the second act because they're in the middle of trying to live through this thing with the consequences of the choices that they've made. I, I asked for some questions from, from the listeners. So this one is from Magali who gets at some, some of what we've been talking about. She wanted to know if you've ever experienced the situation of being a stranger and having to deal with cultural differences. And what would you say about being an American in Marseille? You shot a lot of this in Marseille, of course. Yeah, I mean, I constantly, I'm, it's actually a, a, like, a, it's, it's actually become a comfortable place for me to be. <laughs> I've worked so many times in so many different countries, you know, and there's always that moment where you show up with your suitcase and you're, you don't speak the language and you don't know the city and you're, you know, and you got to figure it out. Um, and, and I, you know, I, it's crazy. I didn't go to Europe until I was 26 when I went to shoot Saving Private Ryan was the first time I got off of this continent and went over wow. there. Yeah. Um, and, and subsequently I've traveled so much like that's, it's, like I kind of chuckled when I got that question because that's happened to me so many times, but I would just say to anybody who gets the chance to travel to, to, I have a friend who recently told me, which I thought was a great line. He goes, I just say yes. He goes just to life. He goes, because you know what happens when you say no, you stay in your house. And, and, but when you say yes, something's going to happen. And, and I thought that was such a great, like something's going to happen. And, and if you can, if you can get your way over there, uh, you know, it, it, something's going to, something's going to happen and, and it might just be great. So I started this by mentioning how my theory is that your career is kind of like the unofficial history of like great filmmakers of the last 25 years. Let, let, indulge me for a second. I'm going to read the, the list. This is the partial list of filmmakers for those that don't like, can't wrap their brains around it. It's kind of startling just to hear them listed. Um, in no particular order, James Mangold, Steven Soderbergh, Alexander Payne, Terry Gilliam, Ridley Scott, Christopher Nolan, Cameron Crowe, Kenny Lonergan, the Coen brothers, Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, Gus Van Sant, Robert Redford, Anthony Mangella, Paul Greengrass, Francis Ford Coppola. Many of those you've worked with several times, <laughs> by the way. Um, it's, I mean, it's a startling list. And I guess the general question is how much of it do you, was, was a strategy and how much of it was happenstance? Like you're a smart guy, you had opportunity. I'm going to go towards the, the icons when I can, when I have the opportunity and how much of it was just sort of like riding the wave. Well, it's both things. I mean, I, you know, I had the opportunity and I took it, but I definitely, if I had any strategy at all, it was aligning myself with great filmmakers and, um, you know, but look, I had to pass on a lot of great filmmakers in that time too. And it's, it's, it's also like, you know, it, it had to, it had to, it had to work out, um, you know, with, with my life, but I, I, I always, uh, I always erred on the side of, um, of, you know, somebody, somebody whose movies I loved yeah. um, because I figured, you know, it's like, I was going to get something out of that um experience you know and 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 on balance if you work with great filmmakers the director's medium as you know obviously so on balance if you align yourself with great directors you're going to make good movies more right. often than not and in some of the movies i made didn't work but um but i always got a lot out of the experience and that was the other thing like it's not 
you know, I do know actors who kind of approach with the strategy of, oh, I'm going to do a big one now. And, and, and if you end up in a movie that is quote unquote big, like nobody knows what movies are big. Like right. you don't know if a movie's going to work. If, if like, if you could predict what movies were big, then everybody would be an A-list movie star. Like you, you have to go, you, you have to know why you're there. Right. Um, and, and, and it's such a time and labor intensive business. I can't imagine working on something that I didn't love, like, and yeah. believe in like that. It just, you still, you're still there for 15 hours every day. Like I, I actually, I had a movie where, which I won't name where I figured out uh, probably one month into a five month job that it wasn't going to work. Right. And, and, and the, and the depression that I went into you know, but I really came away from that experience. And I, and my wife said to me, like, go do, do your job. And it was like, it like released me. I went, yeah, you're right. The definition of a professional actor is somebody who knows they're in a Turkey and shows up and goes 16 hours strong and with a positive attitude and lifts the people up around them. And it's like, I am going to, I'm going to be the band playing on the fucking Titanic. <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to play like, some and I'm going to fucking yeah. smile the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Like, this is it. This is what I do. Like, you want to see me? Like, it was like a challenge. I was like, okay, yeah. let's go, you know? And, 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 uh, and, and I learned a lot from that. You know, I did, it wasn't just a, just a horrible kind of slog, like self life defeating slog. I, 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 I took away a lot of good lessons from that. There's always yeah. a lesson, you know? I feel like there could be 16 different books and practically there have already in different forms of like the making of Goodwill Hunting, but I'm always endlessly fascinated by the different versions that there were and the different filmmakers that almost came to direct it. I heard you, I think on Marin the other day talking about how like Michael Mann was like screen testing you guys or going through auditions. Like I can't think of a, a more different filmmaker than from Gus Van Sant to Michael Mann, the Michael Mann version. What is the Michael Mann version of Goodwill Hunting? What would that have been? I don't know. He, I remember he showed us clips of Mexican gangs and he was like, this is your movie. This is the movie you got to make. And I was like, what? These dudes have neck tats and they're Mexican. Like, that's not at all what South Boston is, man. Well, I like, I didn't understand. And he, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think he wanted to take it like in a really dark, like, you know, like these dudes are like whacking people in the street. And I'm like, yeah, we're not doing the Whitey Bulger thing. Like we're doing these are like kids from that neighborhood, but you know, uh, anyway, but uh, I just, that was, it's funny. I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but I, but I do remember him showing like to Ben and to me and we're sitting there and he walked out of the room and we looked at each other like, the fuck is going on? <laughs> like he said, we're the right, we wrote it. Like you, that's our movie. Okay, so you're telling us that's our movie. Like, you know, but, he just, but look, I mean, every director comes at it with from their own, you know, the, the director yeah. has it. it. It is a director's medium, like I said. So like when we when thank God, Gus finally, well, Har, thank God, Harvey finally gave the job to Gus. We had wanted Gus the whole time. Right. But right. but we had an almost ceremonial moment where we like gave him the script and we're like, this is yours, man. This is not our movie anymore. I mean, a screenplay is like, it's like an architectural blueprint for a house, right? right? It's, what you, it's what you think the house is, should look like. 
And then you got to build the house. And that's what the director does. And, you know, and, and so we, so we, uh, we had to give it up to him, you know, and he made choices that we wouldn't have made. And thank God he did. He made great choices. He thought of things that we never would have thought of. I mean, that's Goodwill Hunting is a Gus Van Sant movie, you know, that we wrote, but, um, but that's, that's what it is. Do you remember Ben recently recalled your audition for the Robin role in the Tim Burton Batman that obviously never came to be. They never actually had Robin in his two films. Do you remember, what's your version of that story? Do you remember okay, that? So that, so well, there's two, there's two stories there. There's, there's the, there's the Robin role. We went down to New York uh, and that's in like 1986. Um, and I don't really remember that audition. I, I it was 1987, maybe 88, 87, 88. I would have been like 16 or 17. And uh, and I don't remember. I, I remember that we didn't have sides for the for the there wasn't like you're reading a scene with Batman. It was like it was so secretive that it was like you're reading this other scene right. from some other movie, you know, and it's like I never got the point of that. But there were some movies that did that back then. I mean, I remember auditioning for him. Um, then subsequent to that in 93, I got screen tested. I was one of the final three to play Robin in the George Clooney and the Joel Schumacher Batman. And I and I I flew out and I remember I knew Joel. I had met Joel uh, and I had worked with Duvall at that point because I remember talking to him extensively about Duvall because he had done Falling Down right. with Duvall. And I'm, you know, a big Duvall guy, Duvall and Hackman. And, uh, of course, you know, yeah. Uh, and I had just done a movie with both of those guys, this movie Geronimo. And so yep. Joel and I talked about that. But I remember I tried to, Chris was, Chris O'Donnell already had the part and, uh, but they were haggling over money. And so they, they, you know, the studio was flexing basically by flying in two other people to screen test, but they wanted Chris, but they just wanted him for a price. And I remember, and I knew Chris and I remember calling, I was like, I'll work for a quarter of what that dude's working <laughs> with. I was like, I want the job. <laughs> yeah, so wow. I flew in and auditioned for Joel, but I think they always intended the, I remember seeing Chris while he was making that. We were friends back then and, and uh, uh, they always intended to give it to Chris. And then there were things, I remember like at that stage in my career, you know, you would go in and read, even if you knew you weren't going to get the part. In fact, um, The Rainmaker, the movie that I did with Coppola, Patrick called me, <clears throat> Patrick Weitzel has been my agent for, I don't know, 30 years now. And Patrick called me and he goes, we'd been tracking this thing because the John Grisham movies were very, were very popular movies, right? right? They were big, but Francis doing a John Grisham movie was like, oh yeah, shit. like the, the great, you know, it's like yeah. the, the Godfather is coming to John Grisham land. Like, you know, and, and, and the Godfather was a pulp novel and, and uh, you know, and Francis talked about that a lot. Like, so I, we were tracking that. I had read the book. I'd, and I was like, what is going on? I know they're making it. I know they're making it. And Patrick was trying to track it. And he called me out of the blue. I was living in Somerville, Massachusetts, because we thought Goodwill Hunting was going to go that year. It, it ended up going the next year. And uh, Ben and I were living up there with Casey. And, and I got a phone call. And Patrick said, all right. He goes, I'm telling you right now, you have a 5% chance at best of getting this movie. He goes, here's what's going on. They're screen testing in Memphis. They've got three girls that they're screen testing, right? And, and they only have two guys. 
If you go to the airport right now and get on a plane and fly to Memphis, you're going to be the third guy. But I'm telling you right now, you, you, you have very, you have almost no chance. You're just like, you're just, a, you're like filling in. And I'm like, great. Just put me in, like, get me on, get me on the field. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I went and I flew down there and I knew, so it was, it was Edward Norton, Balthazar Getty and me. And uh, I didn't see Balthazar Getty on that trip, but I saw, but Edward, Edward had beaten everybody out in LA for primal fear. Sure. And uh, Edward was, you know, I mean, he was he getting was everything. Hot. He was the hot shit in town then. Yeah, he was. And deservedly so. And yeah, still yeah. one of my favorite actors. And yeah. he was a guy who at that age, like I, you know, you got to kind of wolf out at that stage of your career and feel like you're the best thing in the room. But it's like, it's like Charles Barkley once told me when he when he went to play in this like all American thing when he was in college, his coach told him, Charles, you go up there, you show them, you know, you're, you're that Alabama, you represent Alabama, you show them you're the best. And Charles got back, he goes, yeah, he goes, Did you show him, Charles? He goes, yeah, well, there's a dude from North Carolina, pretty good. <laughs> he played with Jordan, you know, and that's how I felt about Edward. I just I was like, look, man, I, you know. I believe in myself, but I just saw something pretty good across. The I saw something pretty good. That dude's good. And uh, and so Edward was there and and I was like, oh, shit, I'm going up against Edward Norton. He's already Edward Norton. Yeah. Right. He's already like I think he'd been nominated for an Academy Award at that point. Was, yeah. Oh, fuck, man. Well, well, this shit just got real. And, uh, <laughs> and I think because they paired me with Claire Danes. And so it's the combo that worked. You, it, you guys I, I really yeah. think she yeah. got me the part. I really think she that, you know, because she was so fucking good. I think she got me the part. And and uh, and uh, that was, you know, that was a huge. And because I that because I got that movie, Miramax greenlit Goodwill Hunting. Right. Because they were they were like, you know, yeah. You know, I, I remember I faxed Harvey Weinstein. I was like, I'm the rainmaker. And he was like, what does that mean? And I was like, I got the Coppola movie. And he goes, Coppola Grisham. Grisham. He yeah, said exactly. the Grisham movie. And I'm like, the fucking Coppola movie. And he goes, oh, the Grisham movie. He goes, all those things make a hundred million dollars. Yeah. If and the so client they can suddenly, make a hundred million dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So we got yeah. fast tracked because, and if you ever look at the, the way they opened it, the, the rainmaker in 97 came out in like November Goodwill hunting, hunting started platforming in like early December. Like they were piggybacking. They were trying to draft off that. They didn't need to, it turned out, because there was this movie called Titanic and everybody went to the movie. <laughs> so Goodwill Hunting ended up really drafting off of Titanic. Right. Like, Titanic was the number one movie for- Like 10 weeks or something. Yeah, for some re re yeah, yeah. yeah. but Goodwill Hunting was the number two movie. Like we just stood in their slipstream. Yeah. Because when people couldn't get in, you know, you know, could people were just lined up around the block trying to get into Titanic show after show. And if they couldn't get in, they'd be like, oh, we'll go see that one. And so we we did a we did a lot like that. Titanic lifted up everybody who was in the theaters at that time. Like it just was everybody was going to the movies. I know I need to let you go in a sec, but I do want to just hit really quickly on Last Duel. Um, the trailer looks fucking awesome. I'm so, I could not be more psyched for this man. This is obviously you and Ridley. Uh, reteaming after the martian but as people know first screenplay that you and ben have collaborated on and you have nicole Holf center also yeah. writing yeah. this which is fascinating and just to mention it one, one other great aspect is jody comer who i'm, I'm an insane fan of um you're gonna be to a bigger you're gonna be a bigger it, fan of jody's after you see this movie oh i, I i'm incredible i'm She's, obsessed with her already yes i i i walked away from that experience <clears throat> 
<clears throat> there's a certain level of gratitude you feel as a writer when actors make your stuff better. And I, I walked away from Adam and Jody from that experience, just going, I can't, you know, I, I literally can't thank you enough. Like they are, they are remarkable actors and, and those roles were difficult and they are great. Um, and we, so we saw it just to give you a background. We saw it, 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 you can't tell from the trailer, but you'll see in the movie, you know, we saw it as a story of, of these three different perspectives, right? And how we look at things based on how we're acculturated to, you know, take in life. And, and, and so Ben and I wrote the, the male perspectives and, and Nicole wrote the female perspective. And Jody is just, I, can't, I just can't say enough about her. I mean, yeah. she's just awesome in this movie and uh and and i you know i'm, I'm really proud of it uh, you know we'll see it's, it's still got to come out and you know nobody's yeah. nobody's seen it yet but like we've seen it and i'm like that's ah, pretty good <laughs> <laughs> now ben ben pretty was initially ben initially was going to do the adam role i know he took a supporting role in this i guess my question yeah. is is there a meaty heat diner scene between you two guys do we get a little of Matt and Ben moment in this film? Well, I, well, I will say, I think it's, it's, it might be, Ben's a supporting role, but it might be the best thing he's ever done. He's incredible in this movie. He's really great. Um, but, uh, and, I, and I won't give too much away. Ben, the, the, historically speaking, anybody who reads this, this book that it's based on um, uh, and reads this history, Pierre d'Alençon, the guy who Ben plays, uh, did not like my, my character at all. And, and in fact, my guy survives 600 years later as it's, he's remembered as jealous and irascible. And, you know, he's, if you imagine like what kind of guy you'd have to be to have that, to be remembered that way six centuries later. So, you know, <laughs> impression, made a mark. yeah, we, he made quite an impression. So we, so that, that we thought about that as we were writing him. Definitely. Amazing, amazing. I can't wait to have a longer conversation with you, you and Ben and Jody and the whole team on that one. Um, I'm very psyched for it. Congratulations, man, on this one. You and Tom McCarthy. It took a while, but I'm glad you got there. Uh, everybody should check out Stillwater. It's a fantastic piece of work. And uh, I'm glad we have you back home here in New York where you belong. You bet, man. I'll see you around. We are off to the races with the only bigger fan than Timothy Chalamet than I, uh, the <laughs> lovely, the talented Zoe Lister-Jones. Hi, Zoe. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. It's so good to see a familiar face. Um, I feel like we've run into each other in bizarre, random, interesting places over the years. And now well, it's a Zoom box. Might as well and now it's this. a Zoom box. Yeah, it's, it's almost Main Street in Park City. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I alluded to the important part. Uh, Timmy Chalamet. I think he, yeah. he get, I, I watched your movie a while back, but I'm trying to remember. I feel like he got a name check in. He definitely uh, gets right? a shout out. I would say he does get a shout out in most of my work and um, also in most of my press. I hope that he is. <laughs> um, Have you got an Instagram I, follow? Are you getting any closer to real life friendship with Timmy? No, little Timmy follows capital Z zero. Oh, is that true? On Instagram, yeah. So I don't feel burned. Uh, I think that's intentionally. I think that's why he did it, just so that he could sort of level the playing field. There's nobody left out. Um, no, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm not closer. And I think the more that I um, sort of like proclaim my uh, desire for him, the further I'm getting away. Um, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> you know, it's a long life, Josh. Yeah. But we don't know. We, we don't, don't know. know. We don't know. Dune, Dune may bomb and he might need all the friends he can get. We don't know how you this know, is going to pan out. Dune is not going to bomb. No, it's um, not. It's, it's not. Awesome. It looks so fucking good. And he's so good. But yeah, I mean, um, I have faith in us. I might be able to get uh, help you guys because I know him a bit to the point where I didn't know he doesn't follow anybody on Instagram, but I have made it. You know how like when someone accepts like those messages to you, even if they're not following you, you're in the good columns. I have DM'd with him because once I was at an awards thing, I literally, he literally left his credit card at the table I was sitting at with him. He DM'd me for the credit card and now we got the link. We're in. So if you All right, a, so you so you're gonna slide into the DMs for me. <laughs> that's that's the saddest thing ever. No, it's not. It's it's happy and confused. It might not be sad. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so yeah, so I'm I'm so into this new dynamic where you are podcaster slash pimp. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started my career as a pimp and now I've come full circle. Right, now it's a return to form. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's put the good word out on your on your uh, wonderful new film, a delightful apocalyptic. Uh, comedy. Uh, that's an a pop comedy. It's it's a narrow genre, but you, you're nailing it. Um, <laughs> you're in the top tier. Um, how it ends is the film, and this is one of the few happy things that we can point at and say, "Oh, look, something good came out of the madness of the last eighteen months." Oh, thanks, man. So, so w- was there any germ of this that existed in any form before? 2020 like did you draw on any ideas or was this just like I need to make something but start from scratch what am I thinking what am I feeling um no I mean Daryl Wine and I conceived of it uh pretty early on in quarantine so we weren't it wasn't like an idea that was rattling around um pre-lockdown but um I would say like on a more macro and spiritual tip, (laughs) these ideas have been rattling around for a long time. Um, You know, this sort of like concept of the inner child, I think is something that um, my therapist's been hot on for a minute uh, with me. So so (laughs) I think like, you know, that came into much sharper focus as did so many things when we were trapped uh, with only ourselves. And I think uh, I have always relied on my work as like, for better or for worse, one of the only ways I know how to process these deeply existential questions. So um, yeah, it felt just like um, very necessary, even though it was also super terrifying to take on an independent film at the height of a global pandemic. Um, And one that was like really like, teensy I mean we were really like returning as you reach as you are about to return to your pimp roots I you know was really returning to my like guerrilla filmmaking roots so we had like a crew of four people and um and so to seven do, days right like I mean and, and ironic it, in it that was, it goes right from your biggest work you obviously were coming off yeah. of directing the craft and you're like yeah two ends of the Zoe Lister Jones spectrum so, <laughs> so so what, what was that week like when you're in production where it's just sort of like all hands on deck and all it's all four hands on deck? <laughs> is, is it? Um... Well, <laughs> well, we had, I mean, we shot, I think, over the course of more like three weeks, but it was sporadic based on people's schedules. So that was actually quite nice to be able to shoot something, watch it, see what, you know, what else we needed um, and then go in with, with, I think a little more acuity when we were when we were um, 
then returning to to set, which was mostly just people's backyards. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it was it was a really nice shift to go from the craft to how it ends. I think it was obviously such an incredible opportunity to be working on a studio film in that capacity as a writer and director MEP. But um, but there's something about like distilling the experience to just it's like sort of purest elements yeah. um, and having so few other voices to contend with and to just like, I think the immediacy of that experience is so important um, to, to like return to, to remind yourself of like, um, yeah, just like the beauty of the, like, you know, this sounds sort of trite and corny, but like the beauty of the process. Yeah. Um, over the product or, you know, the commercialization of the product or any of those, those voices that can come into play. Like the, this um, journey of how it ends was so condensed. It was like, right. we wrote it, we shot it, we edited it, we premiered it at Sundance. It was all so fast and it yeah. was so nice to not like overthink and to just like, you know, sort of, yeah, I guess use it as a tool for catharsis. It, it also feels like, I mean, obviously you're calling in a lot of friends and favors to, to do the, I mean, it's a kind of an amazing cast, an insane cast. Yeah, that insane. It, it, it really kind of permeates, and it's kind of strange to talk about this, like as it is a film about the end of the world, <laughs> but it, it kind of permeates with a lot of joy, I feel. And I, and I have a feeling a lot of that came from the circumstances where like, it must've been like, oh wait, I can get out of the house and like see people I love and create and create art and act because like I know for me like I was looking for any outlet I could we all were yeah so it, it, it was it kind of an odd juxtaposition of like shooting and producing this in, in the worst of times but also kind of be allowing yourself a little joy of getting back to what you do what you do yeah totally it was a really wild dichotomy of like waking up every morning cursing myself for deciding to do this because I was already so like drowning in anxiety as we all were. Um, and then to add the anxiety of writing, directing, producing story <laughs> in a film was like, you know, pretty masochistic in some <laughs> ways. But then at the end of every day, I was so nourished and I was so um, grateful that I had this outlet and so grateful, like you said, to be sitting across from people that I know and love and, um, and to like, I guess, engender a sense of play amid yeah. amidst this really harrowing and uncertain time. I think for everyone, like, you know, the cast is, is bonkers and I'm like so, so lucky that, that uh, my friends were down to, um, to do this. But for, I would say everyone was their first time on camera since lockdown. And I think even though um, the cast is made up of like such heavyweights, there was still like fear on all of our parts. Like, can we show up and be funny? Right. And can we find that sense of play? Because it just felt so fucking bleak, you know? Right. Um, and I think to show ourselves that we could um, and to do so in a way that didn't deny what we were all feeling because of like, I think Daryl and I wanted to create a narrative that wasn't like based in the pandemic, but could be, you know, like 
um, contending with a similar emotional landscape so that whatever we were feeling on any given day, we could put into those scenes and we could put into our characters and it could still feel authentic to the, you know, surreal new normal that we were living in. You mentioned, and I don't know if your therapist gets the thanks and the credits, maybe they should, but yes, I mean, oh my gosh, I put it on the DVD, but I mean, it is kind of, for those that don't know, like the plot a little bit, it's kind of like, it's almost like a buddy comedy where (laughs) the buddies are the same person, you and your younger self, (laughs) kind of um, meandering the streets of Los Angeles, Kaylee Spaney, who also started in The Craft for you, wonderful in this. Amazing. Um, so that's just an interesting starting point. Like talk to me a little bit through like writing that and it's obviously you're not writing yourself, but it's an aspect of yourself, I'm sure. And confronting a different version, a younger version of yourself. Yeah. Um, that's something I haven't really seen much in a film and it's a really clever idea. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, Kaylee and I, as you mentioned, met on, on the craft and became very close in that experience. Um, and in that film, she was playing a version of my adolescent self. Um, so we had done a lot of work on that already and sort of where our adolescent souls intersected, even though we come from very different places. And then when lockdown hit, she was in LA and, um, and we were spending a lot of time on socially distanced walks, um, really leaning on each other because I think we were like everyone, you know, was just battling such intense depression and anxiety. And so much of that is about like learning how to talk to the inner child, you know, and like these most vulnerable selves that we sort of tend to ignore amidst the hustle of regular life. Um, And my therapist, who doesn't get a thanks in the, oh man, in the film, God. <laughs> it's more to sort through um, in the next therapy session. That's, that's, yeah, and so that's the next therapist. movie. The next movie is a buddy comedy between me and my therapist who's not thanks in the film, sort of a, a being John Malkovich-esque um, <laughs> meta comedy. Uh, no, so yeah, like she, she was always like trying to get me to learn how to talk to my younger self um, because I think we all do have this like person, so to speak, um, wherever our like our development was arrested because of whatever traumas we've experienced as children, um, and those and those children need so much healing, and it's like our job to reparent them now as we are grown ass people. But like, how the fuck do you do that? And so I never understood it, and and I think because all of that stuff was coming up, um, you know, in in such a different way and and in such a um, more overwhelming way in lockdown, I thought like, well, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could figure out how to do that mm-hmm. in an actual dialogue with an actual other person. And and Kaylee was doing, you know, similar work. And I was, I sent her this book called The Drama of the Gifted Child that like my mom sent to me, <laughs> LOL. Um, that is about like the reparenting process of, of that younger self. Um, so it was really like, incredibly cathartic to write the scenes between Kaylee and I because it was like therapy homework but also through the lens of comedy which is something that I think is I don't know opens up some different like pathways in terms of how to deal with these things that can feel really heavy and like um and darker than we might want to 
you know, dive into. It's like, it's still why, and this is a, this is an exclusive for you that I have never seen Schindler's List. And as one of the foremost Jewish actresses of my generation, but it's one of, I know. And it's one of those things where it's like, but when's the right day? You know, <laughs> when's a three and a half hour <laughs> black and white film about those darkest days of humanity? Yeah, you know, today's the and, day, and and it feels and like inner child work, sort of that thing where it's like, but when's when is the really the moment where you're like, now's the day I really feel like digging in, right? Um, so this this was sort of like, yeah, well, I could do it if I if I put it into a narrative where um, I could also have a little fun. Um, speaking of darkness and a little fun, you're working with maybe my favorite filmmaker that's that's has a budding career. Uh, Ari Aster is the real deal. Um, and I've and, listened, I listened to your interview with him and it's like one of my favorites. Um, it's amazing. He's remarkable. Um, I, I'm sure you can't say much, but Say, say what you can just about have you started work with him yet what's the script like just no I leave or... next week for Montreal to start um I don't think I'm allowed to say much of anything I know that he has publicly described it as a nightmare co- comedy um and that is I think pretty true <laughs> to yeah um and I think like the only thing I would say is you know, I know you guys talked about the Coen brothers on your, on your um, podcast. Now, of course, the Coen brothers are like a seminal filmmaking duo for me also as a filmmaker um, and uh, anxious Jew. But I would, I, I, yeah, I, it does feel like there's like, there is some, some Coen brothers infusion in this one in, in the best possible way. Right. Um, well, Disappointment Boulevard sounds like the name could be a name of the movie. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah, totally, totally. Or any or any I, Jews autobiography, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I did say to Ari, this is one of the most Jewish films I've ever read. <laughs> I love it. A double bill with a serious man. I'm in. Let's do this. And and I did I did mention a serious man. I was like, this is definitely like yeah, um, uh, a sibling. I love it. Um, well, that's that's all I needed. But to I, hear. yeah, I'm yeah. so thrilled, and I'm and I, he's, I think he's one of the most exciting filmmakers, yeah. um, working, and uh, it's just such a dream to to. I'm just like on so many levels, but just to get to watch him work, I'm like, it's going to be a masterclass. So, where are you at on with your own filmmaking? Obviously, this was a nice kind of like bonus project that kind of came out of circumstance. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you came off of your biggest film in some respects, The Craft. Yeah. Um, what's your appetite or inclination right now in terms of what you want to pursue, what you would want to devote your time to as a filmmaker? Um, well, I am interested in the world of television <laughs> um, because I haven't played there yet. Um, and I feel like it's a, it's a really interesting medium to like explore storytelling because you have so much more time yeah. to do so. So I'm developing a couple things in uh, that world. And then I'm uh, writing a new movie that um, that I'm also really excited about that, um, yeah, I can't speak too much about, but I guess like, I think the, what, how it ends really taught me was like to, to really focus on making what I want 
to make. Um, yeah. And um, Ari Aster is also a really good, a really good mentor in that way. He would never call himself a mentor to me, but I would say that he's a mentor to me. Um, that, you know, like he, he's like, all of his films are like these incredible fuck yous of just like, I'm gonna make whatever the fuck I want. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I would say, um, it's always, it's, it's always an interesting thing. Like, you know, now I've, I've directed um, three films. So like, it's an interesting thing to, to think about, um, to try to quiet those voices of like, how, what elevates or what's, what, how do you level what up? What you're supposed or, to do. Yeah, what, exactly. Yeah, yeah what yeah, are you supposed it. to do? And to just kind of be like, what's the story that I am desperate to tell? And then like, let's go from there. Yeah. And there, there, there's some exa examples where there's Ari Aster or, or, or whatever, like the, those filmmakers that kind of like work on their own terms. And if the budget is 3 million or 10 million or 7 million or a TV series, like who the fuck cares? Like what, yeah. who are we trying to impress? Like, yeah. <laughs> make what's true to yourself. At whatever I mean, who are sense. we trying to impress? I would say, yeah, myself and Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> she knows how to bring it full circle. No. Well, it's a beautiful and... day in New York. I, I, I know you're gonna, you have you, uh, a lot on your plate. You have to go watch Schindler's List for the first time. That's, uh, <laughs> that's my, after, my afternoon is booked. <laughs> Stay for the blooper reel. The bloopers at the end are hysterical. <laughs> um, everybody should check out uh, how it ends. Like I said, I'm so thrilled for you. I, it's always a good excuse to, to catch up with you when you create something. And I'm so thrilled that out of this uh, madness, you you didn't learn to bake bread, perhaps, or maybe you did, but you, you made it. I did it. not. That's I did okay. not. This is I, more I long lasting. No, no sourdough starters anywhere near my physical person. This is your metaphorical sourdough starter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it really is. <laughs> uh, everybody should check it out. Uh, Zoe, it's always good to catch up. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>